So Paul has abandoned the second temple Jewish eschatology, and along with it, he's abandoned the notion that God is a punishing God, that there's wrath in God. Paul has learned the lesson of the gospel. Paul's evolving theology today on In the Shadow of the Cross. everybody to another edition of In the Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser and I am here with my friends Jim Durkin. Hello. And Michael Harden. Hello. And as we talked about last week, we were going to be talking about Paul's changing views. You you actually see in scripture, we'll, we'll, with Michael's help, we're going to do this today, where uh, you can see uh, Paul's theological views seem to change uh, between some of his letters. And uh, I was trying right before the podcast to find this uh, this meme that was really popular on Facebook for a while. And it was basically saying that if if you really have Christianity, your Christianity stays the same. It doesn't change. And the mark of not having the truth is if it changes. And I was thinking, you know, that's definitely wasn't the case with Paul. And then Jim chimed in and said, well, that's not the case with any Christian I know. <laughs> and it's certainly not because anything that's growing changes. So it's just a fact of life. So so we're going to go ahead and jump into this. I guess the best place to start would be with you, Michael, um, on what exactly do we mean by this? Or, or what what is this about Paul's views shifting over time? First, uh, popped into my mind when I read Doug Campbell's book, Framing Paul. Now, I've been a, I've read all the major, the five major chronologies, you know, uh, Hurd and Taylor and, and, um, and uh, Bob Jewett and John Knox and uh, going back to Harnack, von Harnack. So I've read all the major chronologies that I can get my hands on in English in Paul's life. Campbell's was uh, uh, quite extraordinary, uh, not only because it made some decisions um, historiographically. He calls it uh, Framing Paul an epistolary biography. That is, he doesn't use the Book of Acts, stays away from the Book of Acts, and just uses Paul's letters and says, can we establish a backbone and when these letters were written? And um, he does this initially with the Corinthian correspondence, like most scholars are going to do, and and will begin to build a frame for Paul's visits, where Paul is, when he's where he's writing from, and where he's writing to, because the where he's writing from is going to be important. Because let's say he's he's in um, he's in Corinth, and he's writing to Galatia. Well, the Corinthians are going to get to hear that Galatian letter. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'd never thought about that. Yeah. Wow. So, 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 yeah. So, at any rate, you, you keep all of these things in mind. And what Campbell is able to do is come away with a chronology that changed my mind on some very important things. Number one, I always assumed Ephesians was non-Pauline. I have done that my whole life. I thought, I thought the arguments were pretty good that it wasn't Pauline. And Campbell changed my mind just like that. 
And really? We, and when it happened, all the light bulbs went on. I went, oh, I get it. Uh, this, But what, what Campbell did was most writers, most New Testament scholars are going to put Paul's writing career from somewhere around 49.50 to 55.56, okay? Campbell places the bulk of Paul's writing career from the summer of 50 to the summer of 52. And that includes the Corinthian correspondence, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, but it does not include the two Thessalonian letters. Now, my biggest problem with Paul was that if the Thess- in if the Thessalonian letters were dated with these other letters, I could never ever try to to make sense of Paul's eschatology. It didn't work, and that's why you know I would say, oh well, I just assumed that the scholars dating Thessalonians to the fifty two fifty three era were correct, you know and. So I'm assuming that Paul has this eschatology in Thessalonians that he also has in the other letters. But then Campbell came along and said, no, look, Thessalonian letters are written in 41, and here's the evidence for it, and he lays it out. And at that point, I, I just had an epiphany. I had, we possess two letters of Paul while he is still locked into Second Temple Jewish eschatology, Right? Yeah. And then there's what's known as Paul's silent years from 42 to 48. And bang, this explosion of writing. And it's all very different than it was before the Thessalonian stuff. Interesting. Yeah. So, as you know, I've done my work. I have a whole seminar on this. And um, what, what, what I'll do just to kind of highlight a few things. First of all, in 41, Gaius Caligula uh, in Rome uh, is very angry at the Jews, and he's, he's commissioned a huge, enormous statue of himself that he's going to set up in the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? Keep that in mind. Wow. Yeah. We are talking Maccabean area, Antiochus Epiphanes, major revolt, right? Yeah. Okay. This guy is Caligula. And um, in 41, uh, the Roman procurator uh, is uh, uh, called back to Rome. And so there's no Roman secular authority in Jerusalem. Uh, and that's when, whenever, whenever the procurator gets called back and there's no secular authority, that's when the Jerusalem authorities come down on the Christians. Okay. And, and they did that in 41, and they killed the brother of, of John of Zebedee. They killed James, son of Zebedee. Okay, so that, that's when that happened. Okay. So he's the first apostolic martyr, right? Now, this cre- it creates a crisis because, A, it, it means that apostles can die, right? There's still work to be done, right? Yeah. Now... This starts at the church uh, reflecting now upon what has occurred here in this murder of James. And this is when, according to Geert Tyson, the Jerusalem community will formulate the what we have as know as the passion narrative. Okay. 
to formulate the backbone for it, the passion. Okay. From the, you know, the arrest in the garden through the trial, the crucifixion and the burial. That's the passion narrative. And they do that because they, in order to understand James's martyrdom, they have to understand, they have to have comfort in Jesus' martyrdom as they're facing their own martyrdom. Wow. Mm-hmm. So in okay. a sense, the church is going through its own kind of dark night it's of the its soul. Own dark night of the soul here. Yep. Yep. And so when Paul's writing to the Thessalonians and he's talking about Jews are under persecution, just as you're under persecution from your Gentile counterparts here, he, he um, is uh, still um, believing very much that Jesus is going to return soon. They're all believing this because they've been given this mission. And, and if they've been given this mission, they should be able to complete it, right? And they'll have time. But all of a sudden, boom, death comes and just. So now yeah. here's the, the interesting thing. The Thessalonians are not the only ones facing, facing death, but death was a big thing. And they wanted to know, had Jesus come again? Had the parousia, the advent of Christ already occurred? And they had a big question. You see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 4, verses 13 through 5, 11. What happens to those who die before Jesus returns? Okay? That's also one of the questions going to prompt the development of the passion narrative. In addition to that, just like Jesus and James, there's persecution and affliction going on in uh, Thessalonica. And this is in chapter 1, 6, 2, 2, 2, 14 to 16, 3, 4, 3, 7, and 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. And because there's this persecution happening, Paul wants to call the wrath of God down in 1, 16 and 4, 6, as well as 5, 9. Paul uses that language of the wrath of God. And in fact, he's got, he actually develops or has developed or is following a tradition where there is an actual sequence of events that has to occur. And the order is the descent of Jesus, a command, an archangel call, a trumpet, a resurrection, a general resurrection. And there's this eschatological sequence where we see mighty angels in flaming fire and how this fire inflicts vengeance. And in chapter 1, verse 9, he says that those that are persecuting you will suffer eternal destruction and exclusion. There it is, man. There it is. Eternal conscious torment right there in Paul's letters. Boom, he's got that kind of of an eschatological framework there in the um, Thessalonian letters. Now, by the time you write Second Thessalonians, he's added a component to this because he's trying to deal with with what's known as this uh, as this rebellion takes place, what it's going to look like, and so he talks about this man of lawlessness, how the Lord Jesus will slam with the spirit of his mouth by the manifestation of his of his Perusia. But before this happens, there's this thing called Takatakon. Takatakon is that which is kind of holding everything together before it all falls apart. Okay. The point is in the second Thessalonian, first Thessalonian letters, we see the Apostle Paul buying into all the major elements of what are part of known as Second Temple Jewish eschatology. This is very important. Vengeance, the theme of the vengeance of the day of our God was a very important part of the mass masses 
mindset. Um, Samaritanism has four points of doctrines. And the last one is the day of the vengeance of God, right? Um, and, and we see this almighty wrath vengeance in apocalyptic literature. We see it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Okay. So it permeates this, it's just permeated everything. And yet, none of that appears in the later literature, except for the trumpet. Interesting. Right? Yeah. A trump shall sound to signal the resurrection of all. So Paul has abandoned the Second Temple Jewish eschatology, and along with it, he's abandoned the notion that God is a punishing God, that there's wrath in God. Paul has learned the lesson of the gospel, that God is not like the early Christian God. The father of Jesus is not is not is not this the God that James and Peter know. Okay. Paul becomes yeah. aware of this. And so he begins to make theological moves, and as Friedman make theological moves over the course of the next six years, as he goes through his own deconstruction. Oh, but, wow. But unlike liberals today, Paul just doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. He insists on thinking it through, and he does. And he sees himself in relation to salvation history, he sees himself as, 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 as an emissary predicted by the prophets, okay? So Paul has reframed, he's reframed Torah. He's reframed what the death of Jesus means. He's seeing it now not just simply as part of Jewish history, but of global history. Jesus' death means this for the planet, right? Wow, yeah. And so these, there is, it's a significant change when Paul moves away from um, the evangelical, I, I, I meant the Jerusalem church, <laughs> that was view of perfect. God, which, which is still, which, which, which still, it already in 41 is, is, is still Janus faced. Now I would say this, by the time James writes his letter in the 50s, and James, the letter, the little letter of James, is written in the run-up to the Jewish war, okay? And in the run-up to the Jewish war, where Jews are, are, you know, send money to support the troops kind of thing, that's also perceived as treasonous by the Romans, right? Yeah. Okay? And what happens when Jewish Christians... Who are Jewish? Israel's the Holy Land. Maybe they're out in the diaspora. Maybe they're in Athens. Maybe they're in Rome. Maybe they're in Galilee. But wherever they're at, Jewish Christians who are committed to nonviolence. What happens if they take a position with regard to the upcoming war? Oh, wow. Okay. Right? Because at that point, if you cross that line, you say, I'm going to go fight you know, for my country, now you're no longer following Jesus. So James's letter is written in this context, and it's very packed full of extraordinary insight. But one thing that James seems to have come to the conclusion is that 
Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. And you'll notice there's none of the second temple Jewish eschatology in James. Hmm. There's a warning. There's a warning tradition. But you don't all have all this wrath of God, doom and gloom stuff like you do in Jesus' little brother, Jude, who okay. bends a letter after after he sat, tripped on some acid and read First Enoch. <laughs> um, but uh, but but you you don't you I see that shift in the James narrative. I think it's very important. Uh, the Johannine author has made the same moves already. God is light, and God, there's no darkness at all. The writer to the Hebrews almost crosses the finish line. In some respects, he crosses the finish line, and in a couple places, he can't. You can't pull his theology quite across the finish line. But, but for the most part, the Hebrews writers crossing the finish line on this too, and. Um, we see within early Christianity this, this polarity between those who need to fit Jesus into their theological system and those who allow Jesus to reframe their theological system entirely. I find this really fascinating because once again, when you discuss the, um, the, 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 the war coming that the, the um, Jews in Jerusalem are trying to raise money for, um, that takes it out of that they're practicing theology in a vacuum. That that it's like there's a very real event going on that is making them have to look at what do we believe, and and it, and it's so relatable to me because today those are the kinds of things we wrestle with today, you know, mm-hmm. and and so I just I find that fascinating. I. I'm a little confused. I didn't know you could do theology in a vacuum. <laughs> well, you actually don't. But what I'm trying to say is people kind of, it, it's, I guess the perception is they're just kind of be, living their Christian lives, getting persecuted. And, but that, that element of the, their culture is facing something that they themselves are, you know, cause they're still Jews, even though they're Christians, this still affects them. Right. Um, that this is something that they're having to wrestle with. Um, that's something I never knew. Okay. Okay. I'm I'm wondering if something here. I I'm seeing what you're saying about if, if we date the uh, letters to the church at uh, Thessalonica in in 41, and the rest of them 52 to 55. I see that 10-year gap. Does his revelation, Paul's revelation, is it continue to evolve after, say, 52, 50, 52? We wouldn't know, we wouldn't know because we don't have correspondence. Okay. So other books, uh, other of his letters would not show us that? Well, we, I'm we talking about the that... ones that we do have. They're oh, all pretty oh, unified asking, about. Can, can, can I? Can you go on a continuum from fifth from from Ephesians? Yeah, which is the first letter written after the silent years through uh, Philippians. Okay, um, I think you're pretty much going to find consistency. Consistency. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then, yeah. those ten years, those what you're calling the silent years, 
what do we know what was happening in Paul's life that changed his theology? No, that's why they're called the silent years. <laughs> do we know where he was know. during that time? <laughs> huh? Do we know what where we he was? Know, what we do know is at the end of that time, the incident in Antioch occurred. Yes. Okay. Okay. You know. And that's where we see a different Paul. Yep. Yeah, we see a Paul that says the Gentiles are Torah-free. Wow. Totally. I find it interesting, too, that it's not like when Jesus rose again, the apostles met Jesus, and suddenly they're just like, now I've got it all perfectly straight. <laughs> you know, it, it sounds ridiculous to say that, but there are so many people who basically that's how we were taught to believe, is that when as soon as Jesus rose again after Pentecost, then Man, Peter had it nailed down. They they had it. They, this whole thing was completely unfolded and completely clear. And and I love that you brought in the part also with James, his martyrdom. That's another part I'd never heard of how the church, this the reality of that the apostles can die, which you know that's of course they know they're they can die in that sense. But but I mean that the reality of that that. We could lose these guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, that throws them into a crisis, not to mention, like we said, the dark night of the soul of like, oh my gosh, one right. of Jesus' best friends it was just killed. Right. Um, I mean, so even the early church, there, um, if I, I'm going to mispronounce it, there, any view of a, a Deus ex machina God is, is also gone. <laughs> I, th- I think that that is true. Uh, personally think that is true. I, I think once the, once the early church realized it, it had to think about framing its own death. And it does so in terms of the death of Jesus. It, it has pretty much tossed a deus ex machina out the window. Even the, even the rider on the white horse in Revelation is not a deus ex machina. Can you expand on that? Because a lot oh, of people just, get just hung to, up on that. Yeah, just to, just to, to observe that, um, there's all the, the blood's all over him. He doesn't bring blood, and the sword is his word. He's speaking the truth about where the blood, where the whose blood it, all this is. It's his blood. It's his martyr's blood. You know, yeah. the martyrs that cry out from underneath the altar day and night. You know, yeah. But there's no retribution there. There's there's other strange things that happen that are kind of retributive. But but the Johann the, the 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 writer of the book of Revelation uh, deserves credit for best screenplay while tripping. <laughs> and I'll be straight up honest with you, I, I'm not sure it belongs in the canon. If it does, I'm going to say the Mennonites have done the best interpretation of it. But it certainly should not be the last book of Holy Scriptures, though it's the last word, because it it really is Second Temple Jewish eschatology. It, th- there are more allusions to First Enoch in the book of Revelation than anything. And you'll notice something about Revelation. You'll notice how it never once quotes Scripture. Interesting. You're right. It's only all allusions. It's all allusions. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I know when we, uh, when Steve, our friend Steve Crosby and I worked on that uh, Life in the New Covenant series. We interviewed you along with some other people and and we talked about how that was the most fought over book as far as being put into the canon. 
in, in scripture. And that was a, I remember we got a lot of feedback on that one because a lot of people really had a hard time swallowing that pill. That you know, because some people said, "But Revelation's my favorite book." Yeah, I think we we want it to be our favorite, um, basically because we want to, you, you know, the uh, the statement. I read the end of the book, and we win. You know, we you right. know we want we want to win. You know, and and we think the only way to win is the concept of war. You know, you you win because you put down. Uh, ultimately put down the uh, the other side or whatever the case is. Going back to uh, what Michael's been talking about here about Paul, I'm thinking in terms of um, in, in, in the early Jesus people uh, days, we believe the Lord was coming back in the next three to five years. Right. Based on, based on that, we, we believe that uh, since anybody who didn't know Jesus was going to hell, we had to get everybody saved that we could. So we went everywhere preaching the gospel as we understood it. And over time, as life began to happen, uh, we got married, we had children, we had we started businesses. We had bankruptcies. We had children with uh, all kinds of uh, health issues or or perhaps mental issues. We had spouses who were unfaithful. We had divorces. We had deaths, and all of a sudden we began to take a look at things. We're now fifteen years into it. We're now twenty years. We're now forty years. Fifty. And we're beginning to think, uh, maybe we didn't have it right, <laughs> you know, back then. Obviously, the Lord's not coming back in three to five years. And now we find ourselves, many, many of my friends uh, find themselves looking at the end of life possibility, very real possibility, and not seeing the Lord come back in their lifetime and struggling, really struggling, I I think, um, with trying to hold on to, but like a thief in the night, he will show up sooner or later. And I don't know what I believe about that. And, and, you know, it's, it's so, so, I think we're all faced with the challenge of letting go of some of the early stuff that we believe that we were so absolutely convinced this is biblical truth, rock solid. I can build my life on it. And all of a sudden it's like, uh, that doesn't seem to hold water. It's, uh, cisterns that can't, you know, broken cisterns that can't hold water. And we, we start thinking, but, but what can I let go of? What's safe to let go of? What can I still hold on to? Can I hold on to any of it? And, uh, if, if I can't, or if I have to let go of something, what do I now embrace? What do I, what do I know as truth? And I, I think the message 
that uh, God is not a vengeful God. I think the message that you're you're bringing out, Michael, there is no shadow of turning with that God, with our God. You know, He's a God of love. And and what does love look like? And and you bring out almost every time you start talking, Michael, uh, you know about peace. Right. About being a man of peace, not a man of war. About uh, there is no vengeance in God, and uh, there shouldn't be vengeance in us. And uh, that's you know that's a hard one for people to let go of. Um, you know, it's it's a hard one for people to let go of. And and I I, I think as we begin to see that. What you're saying that Paul's theology changed. Some of the other uh, apostles, their theology changed because it, because they begin to experience life, and they begin to look at, well, how do we put what we thought we knew about God into what we're now experiencing? And I I, I think that's that's an okay place to be at. It's probably a good place to be at, especially if we're willing to take good hard looks at what we, you know, is what we have been taught, is what we have believed, can that hold water? When I discovered that here within the New Testament, we have a figure that goes through a Quote, we use the term conversion. It's not It's not a conversion in Acts. Paul doesn't stop being a Jew and become a Christian. And the conversion doesn't occur on the road to Damascus. That's the blindness, okay? The conversion, if you want to call it that, occurs in the house of Ananias. He should be terrified for his life. Yes. Right? And instead he hears the words, brother Saul. Right. And then the scales fall from his eyes. So... If there's a conversion, it's definitely relational sociological, not theological. And then from that point on, you know, Paul's got his three years in Arabia, two weeks with the guys, heads up north, ends up going out as a missionary. And then, of, of course, we've seen that there's this change in him. There, If you want to talk about a theological conversion, I think you have to talk about it between 42 and 48, the silent years. Okay, but he doesn't he doesn't cease being a Jew and become a Christian. There's no such thing there. It's it's that if 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 there is a conversion, it is away from the wrathful God, the Janus face God. And that and yeah, that's that's the brilliance of having those letters with that space in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it, mm. it it really is. It's fascinating. It is. Because you can go back and say, yeah, does Paul affirm eternal conscious torment? Yeah. But he changed his mind. So can you. <laughs> right. Well, and, and that was that was my point. That as time progresses and you begin to experience certain things, you you begin to realize that, you know, what I thought I understood doesn't make sense in light of what I am seeing, experiencing, and having revealed to me by the Holy Spirit. It isn't. It isn't just right um, life experiences necessarily. 
Yes. It takes a revelation of the Holy Spirit to change our way of thinking, if you will. I think it's also important that you uh, bring out that Paul didn't stop being a Jew. That's right. Any more than Jesus did. Now, one one thing, um, Michael, uh, if you could um, correct this, um, I don't know. I, I don't know how accurate this is, but one one thing I had heard was that how Paul talks about being in the end times was that for a Second Temple Jew to have seen a resurrected person means you're in the end. Um, it, it should. Okay. It should be a sign of an eschatological, it truly is an eschatological sign, right? So, so the answer to that is yes. Uh, the other part of it is, remember, these are people that are longing for the restoration of Israel. Because that's where all the promises we're heading towards. Israel is going to be restored, 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 restored. And then Rome comes, wipes it out, you know, in 60, 70, and then 120. You're, you're 130, you know, I mean, 135. So, holy cow. I mean, you know, when well, Jesus didn't return, that for at least early on, that so-called delay of the parousia must have been a shock. However, however, I think by the time the uh, later Pauline letters and the Gospels are written, uh, particularly the Gospels, the apostolic crew is dead. Yeah. You know, the, the, again, the, the very fact that we have four kind of unique, distinct portraits of Jesus that sometimes contradict each other in the same exact fashion that Paul and the Jerusalem community were in contradiction. Right. Mark, Luke, and John's view of Torah versus Matthew. Interesting. Yeah. And um, uh, the literature that's critical of Paul, uh, the revelator, the revelator is very critical. The, the seven churches that are being written to there, those are, that's Pauline churches. The writer is being critical of the Pauline mission. There's a question about whether the Methian community was also, is there also evidence in the Gospel of Matthew of an anti-Pauline tradition? For example, don't think I've come to destroy the law. I've not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And then Paul, Christ is the end of the law. Right. Right. There are just sayings in Matthew that you just sit there and you shake your head going, this is no way this is the historical Jesus. It just, you know, it just, it doesn't fit the logic of the figure of Jesus as you can reconstruct him, you know? So... We, we see that conflict through the New Testament, in the New Testament, right? But it's the same conflict between the prophet and the priest in the Hebrew Scriptures. The exact same. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the, the apostolic church wasn't a happy, clappy family. Uh, they uh, had to learn to, to like and maybe even to love each other. <laughs> they had to learn. The, the biggest most significant uh, groups in the early church moved toward a what what we now would call the gospel here 2,000 years later. I mean, we have the benefit of standing on the shoulders of those who stood on the shoulders, who stood on the shoulders, and so on and so on and so forth, you know. 
um, going all the way, going all the way back to someone like a Paul or the writer of the fourth gospel, you know, or the, or John Mark, you know, the writer of Mark, John, and I think it's John Mark, comes around to Paul's perspective because it's Paul's perspective on food that you find in chapter seven of the gospel of Mark. And of course, Matthew and Luke will follow that. <laughs> But it's probably Jesus' perspective, you know, I, I think so. But, uh, yeah. It's interesting that, um, well, and the reason why I brought up the thing about with uh, having seen the dead is because, you know, how Paul encountering the risen Christ, it, again, we talk about he was he was a Jew. He, he didn't suddenly cease to be Jewish. So in his yeah. framework, especially as a Pharisee, that means I just saw a person raised from the dead we're in the end. I would think there would be some of that there for sure. For sure. Hmm. I do. I don't know how you could not help it. Right. You know, is, is the return of Christ even in the new Testament or is it part of a second temple, Jewish eschatological Christianized framework? Why, why can't Pentecost be the return of Jesus? He returned to us in the form of the spirit, you know? Wow. I, I, I think that's Luke, you know. Is and, that the direction uh, Luke goes with it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can, sure. can, can you expand on that? Well, before who 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 returns at, at Pentecost? Christ. It's a it's a red, the Pentecost event is a kind of a glossed over event. Uh, it's a resurrection appearance to the more than five hundred brethren at once. That nice list there in Paul, right? Yeah. Okay. And. Uh, it's Jesus come back, and then he, perhaps in a, perhaps in a manner analogous to the fourth gospel, he would have breathed on them, numid on them, and that would have started a process in them that they could not control, and um, and we see that in the early parts of the Book of Acts, you know, the 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 early church doing and saying things mm-hmm. that are troublesome to society. Yeah. Or bothersome to leadership anyway. Wow. That's, that's really fascinating. I think uh, that's, that definitely uh, would rock a lot of people, but, but it's definitely, you know, it's definitely something worth uh, exploring. And look, if we don't read the Bible as a purely human book, if we refuse to do that, if we insist on going to the Bible as the word of God, we will never understand anything because we're going to it as imperfect interpreters. Yeah. So no matter how much Holy Ghost we think we have or how much seminary we think we have or how many languages we think we got or whatever it is, as long as we go with that kind of an attitude, we will never hear the message. But if you read it anthropologically, it's a book like any other book. And you, you place what Scripture's doing in its writing from Genesis to Revelation, you put, put that against any other great collection of Scripture from any other culture in any other time and place, and it's amazing what's happening within the pages of that collection of literature that we call the Holy Bible. It's stunning. But as long as you keep thinking God dictated it and dropped it down from heaven and you've got the capacity to interpret it, you're only fooling yourself. Yeah, you know it's you, you. There is you if you, without humility, you cannot interpret scripture, and that means intellectual humility, spiritual humility, 
Blessed are those who are bankrupt in their spirituality. They're, they're not only broke, they owe. <laughs> right. right. And that's intellectually, that's psychologically. You, you, you can't interpret Holy Scripture. You can't know its power and, until you're in that broken state, that, that crucified state, that dark night of the soul. That's when the revelation pours. That's when you realize that God is with you. That's when you know the resurrection power of Christ. That's when you will be victorious, as it were. And it has nothing to do with circumstances. It, is, it changes one's attitude and orientation to life. And then life kind of falls into place. And Jim, as you were talking about the uh, the boomer generation, which Michael, of course, you're part of, um, you know, the the uh, the Jesus people generation, you know, kind of realizing a lot of the things when you were young um, are different, um, just because of the the perspective you had when you were young and stuff. Um, are you finding that there are a lot of a lot of people in that generation? They're they're taking a second look at everything and, and kind of just like you are kind of coming to different conclusions than they had in the past? Well, I think there's a, there's a percentage of um, Jesus people generation, baby boom generation that are starting to take a real serious look at things, questioning long held beliefs uh, and practices Um and it's I, I, I guess, and I, I don't mean this as a shameless plug, but I guess that's why I enjoy doing this podcast, because we keep saying week after week that it's okay to ask these questions. It's okay to look at them. And from time to time, we bring up various um, uh, sources that will help you in that search. I, I I wish there were a way that we could even provide more sources uh, for the people that are are serious about wanting to wanting to uh, take a good hard look at the things that we've we've preached, the things we've been taught, maybe aren't as accurate as we thought they were. Uh, unfortunately, there is also a good percentage of people from that generation that are doubling down. <laughs> They're like, no, I know what I know, you know, because I know, because I know that I know it. And it's like an endless circle. It's like, you know, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And what we mean by God said it is we read it in the Bible. And it's, it's important to me that anyone listening understands that neither Michael, Warren, or myself are saying you can't trust the Bible. We're not saying that. We're not saying debunk the Bible. What we're saying is that you need to understand the perspective from which the writers of the books that were canonized some 300 to, you know, to 1,500 years later, are writing from their own perspective. They're writing from the historical value that they placed on things that they saw. They're writing from the personal experiences that they're having. And when that's understood, when we put it in its proper context, now we have great value for 
the Bible, for the the writing of uh, the apostles and prophets. What I like to say is the Bible teaches us how to do theology yes, and how not to do theology. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Anyhow, I, I'm, I'm just saying that, that our generation is greatly divided right now, especially evangelicals. <laughs> yeah, and you, you definitely, I, I've definitely seen that division um, just, you know, playing out just, just even on social media. I mean, you, you can definitely see there's, there's um, a division going on from uh, the Jesus people generation um, on where, where they're standing on, on these kinds of topics. I don't, I don't know too many former Jesus um, people stuff from back in the day. And I, I don't tend, you know, I don't, I don't know them. I would, I would, it would be very sad for me if they were to sell that heritage for a bowl of porridge, evangelical porridge. But isn't that uh, almost historical in the, in the church world that um, a, what became a denomination uh, that started out in some type of a move of, of God or whatever you, however you want to frame that, eventually becomes the persecutor of the next generation or the next move of God. Uh, that That is also true historically, sir, correct on that, yes? So it, it doesn't surprise me that uh, that's what's happening now. It saddens me, but it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, right, exactly. It makes me very sad as well. Yeah. Um, I think the greatest tragedy um, that that has occurred with the uh, in the Jesus people generation, um, but not as a whole, because there's um, there's a lot of people like you guys doing what you're doing here. Um, that because of that mentality of Jesus is going to come back any day now, there wasn't a a, a mindset of like preparing the next generation of, you know, cause it's like, we're all going to be out of here. Oh yeah. So, so there just wasn't like this long-term mentality of laying a foundation for, for who's coming, which that is now shifting for a lot of them as they're realizing, Oh, you know, we're going to leave the planet before too terribly long. So we probably should leave something, you know, but, uh, but, but sadly that, that wasn't the, the mindset. And in fact, I heard this one pastor, he talked about, uh, it, it was a guest speaker came into a church and, uh, everybody there was, this was a couple, um, decades ago and everybody there was, uh, was the Jesus people generation. And, and he asked him, he goes, where's your youth group? And they said, Oh, we don't have a youth group. Well, he goes, I know you don't have a youth group because you all think you are the youth group. Oh, <laughs> oh that was cool and unusual, sir. Ouch. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> but, uh, but, but it's interesting because in, in my generation, Gen X, um, we didn't think we would be here, but for different reasons, we, we had kind of a fatalistic mentality that we weren't sure we were going to get nuked. You know, so so my generation kind of was like, maybe we'll be here, maybe there'll be World War Three, and we'll all be gone. So it just it's interesting the different mentalities of the of the generations. Probably be better off if you were nuked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That generation Z. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 
Well, guys, this has been a great conversation. Enjoyed being with you guys as usual. And uh, everybody listening, hope you enjoyed it. Um, Jim, where can people find your book? On Amazon. Which, guys, if you liked some of the stuff he shared today, he hits on a lot of that in his book, which is really good. Talking about uh, uh, denominations getting st- uh, people latching on to something God is doing and then camping out at that place instead of moving on to what God's doing. In other words, stopping growing. Yes. Um, it's really good. Uh, Michael, where can people find your uh, find your stuff? Amazon and YouTube. All right. Thanks, you guys, and thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you all again next week.